Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine Miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine Miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I also want to remind our listeners that we're also live streaming on Resiliency Within's Facebook page. So today I have with me Doug Jackson, and we are going to be, we actually entitled this segment, Power of Respect in Juvenile Justice, Building Anchors and Bridges. But I want to tell you a little bit about Doug, who I've known for a number of years, He just retired May 1st from his position as the clinical program manager for the Georgia Department of Juvenile Justice. And he's really been, I will have to say, a mover and shaker in that system. And he'll tell you a little bit more about it in terms of all the different kinds of things he's brought to that system. But during his 28 years of social work, Dr. Jackson has conducted social research, evaluation of practice, quality assurance, and written grants. He's facilitated the introduction of the trauma-informed yoga, and he's going to tell us what that is and how that worked out for the young people in the system. Um, He also has, um, he's been involved with bringing to DJJ um, Dr. Ashley Owen-Smith's NIH-funded trauma-informed mindfulness-based yoga evaluation. And Dr. Jackson also happens to be a certified trainer in the community resiliency model, and he's participated in crim trainings across Georgia. And he's also a certified mindfulness teacher. So he has his bachelor's degree from Northwestern University, his master's and doctorate from the University of Georgia. He also plans, even though he's retired, he's going to be a volunteer with CASA. And CASA serves as the guardian ad litem in Georgia. And I want to just welcome you, um, Doug. I've so admired the work that you do. And I've also always seen the the passion you have for young people. So as we start today, is there anything in particular on your mind? Um, Yeah, just trying to to keep up with my um, 18-month-old granddaughter and looking forward to tomorrow, actually, I've got the interview for CASA. So sort of coming and going all at the same time. So starting your new life and getting to spend time with your granddaughter, which I imagine that you're going to do a lot more of now that you're retired. That's the plan. All right. So, well, I want to, you know, start out by asking you a few questions and I'm going to quote you as we get started. And that is you've shared the following statement with me. Ask a youth involved in juvenile justice, how they feel. And the response you will most likely hear is, I feel disrespected. The default response from the system is often along the lines of, you don't know what respect is, and thus sets off an office, often vicious downward spiral. Can you share why you believe it does not have to be this way? Well, I, I know it doesn't have to be that way because I've, I've worked with these youth and I've seen, well, you know, when you talk about it all the time, instead of asking what's wrong with you, ask what happened? to you. And so when we uh, turn the conversation just ever slightly to, 
I'm sorry you feel disrespected. What can I do to help you feel respected right now? Then the whole conversation shifts. And instead of uh, a kid who's sitting at the edge of his seat, really tense, you can see him just just relax into their seat and, and start to open up. And, and the whole conversation is a different conversation. Well, and we know for all of us, for adults and adolescents, children, that making connection is what really a relationship is all about. And if we can make those connections with children, you know, obviously that have, have had great challenges if they're in the system, then how might that be the beginning of a trajectory that changes the course of their life? Well, if it's a, a sustained relationship, one of the things that um, is not great about most juvenile justice systems is, is the kids experience of it is, is very uh, scattered. Uh, a kid might have four or five different um, therapists, for example, and they're staying at the department. So unfortunately, they make a relationship and then it disappears and they feel when the next opportunity comes along, I'm not going to open up again. But if we can sustain the, the, the trust and the care, then we can uh, give these youth a chance to, to look when they come in and they see us and, and um, they've got these skills that if they weren't survivors, they wouldn't be with us. You know, these kids just there having lived this long is a survival skill. And so often in juvenile justice, we'll say, you know, that's what's wrong with you. You do this and this and this. Well, but it's their skills that got them here. We can't expect them to abandon them. But if we can say, could we add a couple of tools onto your toolkit? Not take away the ones that have worked for you in the past, because you know your environment and I don't. But could would you be interested in learning some other tools so that you don't have to go at everything in this one negative direction? And if we can give them opportunities to practice those skills, then the confidence builds and, and risk taking in terms of I'm going to risk putting myself out there starts to become more possible. Well, so is this what you mean um, when you say trust and respect, you can cultivate that and that that becomes an anchor, creating a bridge between the youth and the staff? Absolutely. Um, if we can create a trusting environment, then uh, youth are more likely to to listen to the suggestions that we've got, but also to start to build a bridge to to. In our system, you can build a relationship with your school teacher, you can build a relationship with your counselors, you can build a relationship with the, the people who are trying to help you plan how you're going to go about your life when you leave here and that can really shift the way that uh, a youth goes about pursuing their future. And, and that's important because there, there have been times, particularly early when I'm in this business because we got, we got sued by the federal government. Our, our, our care, yes, our care was so bad that it was unconstitutional. And um, so there was no behavioral health when, when I got there, it had just gotten started. And we didn't do any um, planning for when the kids got out and uh, youth would learn all these skills and then they'd go back to the homes that they left in and they'd get in trouble again almost immediately. 
so that we need to be building those bridges that'll that will be maintained once a kid gets back into the community so how do we also create structures that when they go home that they also can take some of the good things they learn when they're in the when they're I don't know. Is the right word incarcerated? What what do you what is the right word to say when you're detained? Um, but that seems to be essential. Well, you know, I guess I, I want to talk a little bit because I, you know I'm so I'm really I have been very affected when I hear about the work that you've done. So while working um, for the Georgia's Department of Juvenile Justice, Doug taught youth meditation, introduced them to their nervous systems, helped youth discover. I love this, the dignity and resilience that these are your words, is their birthright. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, how did they take the classes that you brought in? Um, did the system embrace, okay, let's try meditation. <laughs> I imagine there may be at times we're going, what? What do you want to do with our kids? Can you give us a little bit of information about the, your journey? Because there may be people listening from other states, other countries that may say, hmm, maybe we can do this here as well. Sure. And if I had to start anywhere, it's like, be opportunistic. You know, things don't always just happen the way you, you, you want them to. But sometimes you can work with what you've got, and it turns out in unexpected ways. Um, starting meditation, for example, that's, that's a good example of not seeing it coming. Um, I, I'm part of the Shambhala Center at, in Atlanta, and I was talking with my meditation instructor, and he just, as an aside, said, you know, I want to get some meditation going in, in that uh, youth detention center down the street. I'm like, well, Dan, you know, actually, I might be able to help with that. And so I didn't bring it up. He bought it up. And from there, uh, I took, we both took Fleet Mall's um, Path of Freedom course. And um, because I was at that time, I was the, the regional coordinator for behavioral health at, at that center. And uh, so I had the personal relationships to be able to go to the director and say, um, I'd like to do this. We're going to do it as a volunteer on Saturdays. I know you guys need more programming on the weekends so that I could play to what it was I knew that she wanted anyway. And so we just started um, doing it. And it's uneven. I mean, uh, a success is a kid that just sits there and doesn't act out. But there were also uh, a, a lot of youth that I worked with who obviously had gotten a lot from it. And um, I guess another thing I'd say is, is the more you can, this is common with trauma, you know this, the more you can give choices, the more that you can give the, the, the kids that you're working with real opportunities to, to lay out what it is they need, the, the more involved kids are going to get. Um, I had this stack of, of uh, problems that kids have in their lives. And uh, it was a card sort. And they, they'd just sort out, this is a problem, this is a problem, this isn't, this isn't. And then we'd look at the stack of what was a problem and, and try and talk about, well, how could meditation help with that problem? And uh, just the physical act of being able to sort out the cards seemed to, 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 to change the conversation some. And I mean, you could see it's like, no, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. And they're like, okay, we're going back to that one, you know? Well, again, I'm, I'm hearing you being socially engaged with the kids, that you yeah. care about what they think about. I often say the deep listen, and we do the deep listen, we find out things that also can 
not only are the issues they're dealing with, but also some maybe solutions to the problem. But I want to underscore what, what you and, and the, the leader of the, the, the center did together. You had a conversation. And I, I've often heard this from so many people that I've interviewed around the world. Well, I was talking to a friend of mine and then they, they knew someone who knew somebody. And then we all got together and it, we created something. And I guess it goes back to that Margaret Mead statement, never underestimate that a small group of people can change the world. Um, because I know that there's more that you've done as well with other kinds of modalities that have been really helpful. So I'm, I'm wondering, I want to ask you one more question though. Sure. That is, um, I know that um, the Office of Behavioral Health introduced empirically validated treatments of emotion regulation and, and aggression replacement. And, you know, so there's lots of things that you did, but um, I guess this question is a maybe a gnawing question that you've had to explore, but why is it so difficult to change an organizational culture that is expensive and doesn't work really well? I don't know. That's a big question, Doug. You may not have all the answers to it, but I would love to hear your, your perspective on that. Well, I definitely don't have all the questions, but it is that is, I mean, the answers, but that is the question that, that, that haunts me weaving this is, is that um, we seem to have taken the same punitive approach with youth for the 22 years and change that I worked there, and it has never worked. So we try other things and the staff basically sabotages it and uh, it's and and we get such turnover that it's difficult to 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 make changes but we actually shut down one center for four months because some stuff was happening that we need to do rearrange stuff and we hired all new staff when we reopened and within six months we we're right back where we started so i mean culture is is just very tenacious but it doesn't have to be that way the best place that that i supervised isn't there anymore but it's called savannah river challenge and it was run by uh, associated marine institutes in florida and i'll do the plug because they were just really good they were a nonprofit, and they they put together a good system and where, like the department, every single one of our facilities is surrounded by two layers of razor wire. You know, that we are um, secured by, by razor wire. At Savannah River Challenge, they didn't have any razor wire. Now, granted, they're kind of in the middle of a swamp, but their whole thing was that we have four sets of eyes on every single kid here. And kids don't run because we pay attention to them. And um, also Savannah River Challenge being what it is, they had a pond with an alligator in it. And okay. so they were, you know, during orientation, they were going to say, guys, this is what's outside of the facility. So you may want to stay here. Um, that would keep me inside. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't it? I mean, that, 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 that brings it home. Um, but also, I mean, they would use this as an opportunity if you were, if you were good and you were interested, you could throw food into the alligator and, and, you know, the, the, the youth really liked that. Mm -hmm. They didn't have the turnover in staff that we had. We were under this memorandum of agreement, right? So the director of behavioral health at that time, uh, Richard Harrison 
says, okay, I need you guys to go out and get a complete inventory of all the therapeutic restraints that we have because the federal government wants the West. And, you know, we were very task oriented at that point. So we were running out and getting these. So I go to Savannah River Challenge and I ask the, the psychologist, Rick Ballinger, uh, what therapeutic restraints do you have here? And he says, duck, my boss would fire me. We don't do that. I mean, think about the difference in attitude there. Well, so and how, do, how do you get that, that attitude shift into larger systems? It sounds like that was working. So, but it wasn't adopted by the entire state of Georgia, for example, juvenile justice. Um, I am, I am not sure. Um, I mean, it's going to take a visionary leader who's willing to, to take a long view of things, uh, because, um, you one thing about DJJ is, is, is that we are all or nothing instead of doing uh, a rollout and a test and we build up from there. No, we do everything all at once and then it, 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 it's problematic and then we abandon it. If you could do it in a staged way, starting with successful centers that you know are stably staffed and well-read wed in the first place and you build on that, yeah, I mean, really, I guess I, I say leadership is the key. Every well-run facility that I've been around has had an exceptional leader at the top who um, knows every kid in place and knows every staff who works there. So uh, that's I mean, you, you've known like those leaders, haven't you? Right? Almost yeah. like it becomes an avocation. But, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm coming back to this idea that we, we you and I have talked about this um, and you know my philosophy about it, that there is that conventional thinking. I, you know, really am invested in the paradigm shift. I think you are too. And that is, well, that kid was a bad kid. He needs to be punished or they need to be punished. And so then the system revolves around punishment. And mm -hmm. then if that's the core of what we're, what we're doing and we think about the adolescent brain and I think about them is their, their brain is still under development. Mm -hmm. And we know neuroscientists tell us there's a process called tuning and there's a process called pruning, right? The tuning mm -hmm. is we can cultivate positive experiences even in kids that are incarcerated. And when we tune those positive experiences, that new neuronal networks form in their brain and their body, and that they can actually then create a greater sense of well being that can actually change the way they look at themselves and the way they look at the world. And so, but if we have come with that punishment frame of mind and that what we're doing is tuning that, then what we're tuning is shame, disrespect. And that becomes the lens of how they look at their world. So I know that we are both invested in what we call now trauma-informed care, trauma-informed perspectives. I want to talk a little bit about the trauma-informed modalities that you brought into juvenile justice. But before we get there, um, I'm curious about your opinion about, um, do have a lot of these kids had trauma? Do you think it's higher than the general population in the juvenile justice system, system the youth that you encounter? Can you give us your insights yeah. or maybe there's research about it that I'm not aware of? There is research about it, but let me put a plug in for the adolescent development, which I wound up being the person who trained our officers in. Um, we have a positive behavioral interventions and support PBIS system where that system actually 
you can give kids like at at, at uh, DeKalb, they were they were uh, bucks, and um, anybody in the facility can give out bucks for someone who's done something that sets the culture that they were trying to trying to to set up, and um, that system has really addressed part of what you're talking about about trying to build positive frames rather than than negative frames and one of the biggest battles that we got into with that was if a kid has got 20 behavioral 20 of these bucks and he does something that he winds up getting a disciplinary report for the officers were absolutely expecting that they could take away all this kid's bucks and what the system says is is no this kid's earned them he can't use them during the time that he's being disciplined but he never loses them. And that's, that's been part of the shift that we've been trying to, to implement. Um, you talk about differences in, in uh, trauma. Um, remember the uh, initial ACEs survey that was done in San Diego. And in that survey, 36% said that they hadn't had any traumatic experiences in the first 18 years. The juvenile justice authorities in Florida reproduced that study, and instead of 36%, 2%, 2% had a zero A score. Something like 14 times more likely to have uh, uh, an ACE score in, in juvenile justice than in, in the normal population. And much of our research talks about how an ACE score of four or more can have long-lasting uh, health uh, problems, chronic disease problems. So um, what was it, 13% in the San Diego study had four or more? Half of the kids in the juvenile justice system had four or more ACEs. And these kids weren't 18 yet. They were still adding to their ACE scores. So it's ACEs are, are normal but they're not evenly distributed. No. And so when we look at it that way, we know something that trauma informed question is what has happened to those, to those children. Mm -hmm. And we also, when we look at it that way, it becomes like, well, this is a public health emergency. And mm -hmm. I know many of us have felt that about, you know, when we've learned about ACEs, but if we can't help to change the parents, right, it, it really is societal change. And the children are the symptom bearers of what's happening in their families and within their communities. And, you know, I, you know, I know that sometimes when people hear me say this, they think, oh, you're just excusing bad behavior. Mm -hmm. you know, we have to have consequences for behaviors that harm others. But we also have to look at the larger system and to say, if that child has harmed someone, okay, so what happened to that child? And what can we do now to create situations where that child learns that he doesn't have to, let's say, perpetrate violence towards someone in order to maybe get some need met based on the traumas that he's experienced in life. And I guess that gets me to my to my next question for you. And I want to make sure we have plenty of time to talk about that. And that is trauma-informed yoga. Oh. And I would really love to hear about what you've done with trauma-informed yoga. How did it get started? How did the kids take it? Tell us all. what. Let's get started with that. And I know we'll have to take a break in a few minutes, but we'll continue after the break if we don't get a chance to finish the whole conversation about trauma-informed yoga. So first of all, what is trauma-informed yoga? 
Okay, trauma-informed yoga is not the same as you know recreational yoga in that um, actually, you know, I forget the guy's name, but he worked in the same um, research unit that Bessel van der Kolk worked in. And he developed this trauma-informed yoga that, first of all, is very invitational, is very clear about, you know, trauma instructors always want to get hands-on and show you the position and help readjust your body. And, of course, that, that's a really bad idea with with uh kids who've got complex trauma backgrounds so you know in some respects the simple stuff uh be invitational treat kids with respect no touching um but they've put together a curriculum that has been tested many times uh particularly actually in the va system uh that has been shown to to um help with depression and anxiety and self-harm, uh, some of the, the PTSD, some of the most persistent problems that um, the VA looks at. But in some respects, in DJJ, our PTSD rates are higher than the VA. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's not a bad frame to think about. Our kids are like war vets. And would you, would you be wagging your finger at war vets going, what's wrong with you? Whereas it makes more sense to, man, you have been through a lot. How can we turn the corner here? Um, But you ask how it got started. Well, it got started just because when my uh, meditation instructor and I had this conversation, we decided, well, you know, what we need to do is we need to have a dinner and bring together like-minded people and think what are all of the different modalities that we could bring to bear in a detention center that could help not just with meditation but what else and so we had uh oh probably about 12 people at that dinner and uh brendan zawa de silva was there um and uh everybody had well we could do this but first we have to do like everything was that comma but first we have to do thing and holly black who uh is the director of centering youth uh said guys you get me clearance and I could start tomorrow. We already do this in the cab juvenile court. We already do this in the Fulton juvenile court. Let's just get started. Tell so me was, how I get clearance. He said, Oh no, we don't need to do all that. Get me clearance and I'll get in there and I'll start next week. Because sometimes if you wait for all those other things to happen, it could take weeks, months, years to get something in. And sometimes I always say small change leads to larger change and larger change. So I want to hear more about when you all went in with the trauma-informed yoga, what happened next. So we're going to take a short break. But when we um, get back from our break, we're going to talk, do a deeper dive into the trauma-informed yoga and what happened after the group of 12 met. And when, what's his name again? The person who said, just get me clearance. You said oh, there's it's a, a she, Holly a she. Black, H-O-L-L-E. Holly Black. Okay. so. God bless Holly Black. So I want to hear more about what happened when Holly Black got your ears and said, get me clearance and I'll be there. So we'll be back in just a few moments and I will continue this lively conversation and very important conversation with Doug Jackson. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. 
The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine Miller Karras book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Elaine Miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with Doug Jackson, who really is one of, I so admire you, Doug, He's a thought leader. He's bring, brought into the juvenile justice system in the state of Georgia some very important, I think, healing modalities for the, the children that have been incarcerated in their system. And he shared with us, I think and it's really always so heart-wrenching to me um, when we think about the high degrees of post, um, high incidence of post-traumatic stress that children in the juvenile justice system have. And so I know that when you brought the trauma-informed yoga into the uh, into the system, um, this was one way to address the trauma that these young people have had. So um, when you had that meeting of 12 and Holly Block said, get me clearance, I'm going to be there. Tell me what happened next. Well, we, we got her clearance. And frankly, I had my concerns. I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, 14 to 16 year old black guys doing yoga. Is this really going to work. And uh, Holly is always very specific in one thing. She was like, I don't want gawkers. If you want to see what's going on, you've got to come in the room and you've got to participate. So I, I was breaking a big rule for her when I went to the center and it's, it's held in a classroom. So they've got big windows at about four feet high so that the guards can easily look in and, and make sure that everything's okay. So I go in and I look and everything's going, going well. And Holly's giving me the evil eye. Like I told you not to do this. 
Yes. And and the, the then sergeant was there right with me, and she's shorter than I am, and I know this is radio, you can't see, but she's like up on her tippy toes looking over into the window, and she turns to me and she goes, those are some of the worst kids in this center, and they're doing fine. I thought, we're on to something. This, 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 this is landed. And um, it's, it's at that particular center until COVID hit, we were having two, three classes a week. They, they did some surveys with, with kids asking what they thought about it. And the most common response that they had back is, why can't we have more classes? So, yeah. you know, the kids that, that have an it, opportunity to take it, like it. But what was it about the yoga? Did you, you know, that, 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 that uh, resonated with them? Was it the movement? Was the fact that they felt a certain sense of peace in their bodies for the first time? What, what, what experiences were they having? Well, let's first think back to, to what the research tells us. I mean, both uh, Bruce Perry and, and Vanderkalk are very clear that uh, body work that works with the limbic system is way more effective than talk therapy. And just on a more general level, you know, adolescents like doing more than they like talking, particularly talking to older people. So on one level, I think this succeeded just because it gave them a chance to do and to, to use some of that energy that was just brewing in them. But beyond that, um, there is the, the, the component of being able to, to get in touch with your body and feel the energy and how it can move and how it can change that these instructors teach, I mean, treat kids with such respect that, that uh, the, the conversation shifts and it, it's just not the same conversation. I think one of the, the favorite things I've heard was one kid who um, was, was, had adult charges so that um, when he turned 21, he's going on to, to the adult system. And uh, he came every week and he was, he would practice poses in his cell and then come to class and ask the teacher if he could teach that pose. Now, right. there aren't many places in our system where, where, where young people get to show that sort of leadership. Well, and, and I think that's one of the things. About the, you know, what some neuroscientists call the remodeling of the adolescent brain is part of what you do when you're an adolescent is you learn skills that are going to help you not only through your adolescence, but throughout your life. And so there he was learning poses and wanting to teach them. He was mastering something that had a positive impact on himself and others. And I mean, that is exactly the kind of thing I would think that we want to nurture, pour water on and say, let's keep doing it. But I think the other thing that we know about, you know, just the movement of the large muscles of the body, when we um, move those large muscles, if we're in what we call the high zone and we're stressed out or we're disconnected, that those kinds of body movements help us to get back, back into a more balanced state, which, you know, in the model, the community resiliency model that you and I both know and teach um, is called the resilient zone or the zone of well-being. So that's what the that's exactly what the yoga was, was helping them with. But, you know, there's something else that, that strikes me when you say the staff turnover. Now, the yoga people that were coming in were dedicated to the healing practices of yoga. So they believed in it. They were passionate about it. And they said, maybe this can help this child, the children here. But when you go into other systems in juvenile justice, 
Are you going in because you want to heal children? Maybe some people do, but I imagine that there's a different mindset of how you get a job and what you may be doing there. Does that need to be changed? I don't, do you understand my question? I guess I'm wondering about Well, the I do. And yeah. going back to my example of Savannah River Challenge, for example, the staff there liked working there and they felt like they were a team. And um, I don't see as much of that within the, the systems that we run. That was run by a nonprofit. But, um, you know, it's, it's in terms of how dedicated people are. I mean, please understand there, there is a core of, of people who have been there for a long time and we feel like war veterans. We've been through a lot together and they stick it out and uh, they're just some of the most brilliant people I've worked with. But um, uh, there's, it's also, it's like we get some of these best people and we don't pay as well and we don't have the opportunities for advancement and we lose some of those best people. You know, when I came out of college, the first thing I did is I worked as a mail carrier because I was sick of reading books <laughs> and working at the PO, um, uh, the first thing I learned about organizations is, is that well-functioning organizations keep their best and fire their worst. Poorly functioning organizations can't keep their best and have to suffer through with their worst. Well, I'm afraid we're on that second part of the scale that, that we have a difficult time keeping our best people. Um, if we could improve the opportunities, it's just, it's really not all about pay. Everybody talks about pay. Pay is important. Don't get me wrong. But uh, why did the employees at Savannah River Challenge feel so dedicated to the team they were on? Because believe me, they weren't making big bucks. So I know it's possible. About their efficacy of feeling they were making a difference. You know, we talk a lot about on this show about meaning and purpose. Mm -hmm. we don't have that meaning or purpose, or if we were dedicated and like you say, brilliant people who really had the best uh, will for the kids, but feel that no matter what they did, that it wasn't the meaning, their meaning and purpose was getting shrouded. Do you think that's part of it or not? Um, well, it's definitely part of it. I think that uh, at centers where the whole center felt that they were making a difference, and I can think of a couple ones that, that I supervised where that was very obvious. And they were all, by the way, rather small. There were 30 bed centers rather than these 60 or 80 bed centers that we seem to think are efficient. But at any rate, at those smaller sites, they felt like family. Yeah. And so as a family, they knew what it is they wanted to get done and who they could rely on, who would have their back. Because part of it's what's so important in this is, is, is that it's very stressful work so that when you fly out of your zone, you need to know who you can say, hey, you need to take my back here. I'm, I'm ready to lose it. And those smaller sites, everybody had everybody else's back. They, they knew when somebody was, was getting into the high zone and to, to switch people out so that, that um, our stress didn't get unloaded on the kids. Right. Somebody needed a resiliency pause, we call it, call it right? Exactly. So yes, let me thank you. This. I'm going to segue into that right now because you're a community resiliency model teacher. Now, how were you first introduced to the to what we'll call CRIM from here on out? How did you learn about it? And tell okay, us about this, journey. 
this gets to be kind of a repetitive story here, but it goes back to the Shambhala Center. Um, Linda Grabby, who we, we both know, um, who, who teaches CRIM and, and is at the uh, Emory School of Nursing, wanted to add some meditation on to her classes. And so she came to the Shambhala Center and talked with uh, the center director. And he said, oh, you know, you ought to meet this Doug Jackson guy. I think he'd be interested in this. So it's, 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 it's all like opportunities, fortuitous circumstance. They fall in your lap, but you just have to be awake enough to catch them, you know? Well, I'm just wondering, because I met you during a sleet storm in Atlanta. I'll never mm -hmm. forget that sleet storm because, oh my goodness, we were supposed to be at the Emory School of Nursing and then we were at the hotel and you came and, and you came, I think you had lunch with me, or at least we, I remember mm -hmm. sitting around a, yeah. um, a, a nice little couch there and a bunch of us talking about it. So was that around the time that you met Lindy? And because after that, then we started conversing about the possibility of CRIM in the juvenile justice system. Yes, that was... Um... She had a number of two-hour introductions, and uh, right off the bat, I knew that, like, this is something that I want to learn more about. This is something that would work within juvenile justice. But the other thing I remember about that luncheon, too, was we had just been through a couple months before when we had the, the six inches of snow and the whole city shut down. Yeah. And so I was like, I got to get out of here as fast as I can. I want to meet you, man. But, oh, boy, do I ever need to get on the road? <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, you brought up Brendan Ozawa Silva, who was at mm -hmm. the, the uh, dinner of 12 regarding meditation. And the reason why I got very involved in another project at, at Emory was through Brendan. But one of the conversations that we had early on is that he was very de dedicated to the state prison system, uh, system mm -hmm. in Georgia and working with the inmates there. And he had a bit of frustration, he shared with me, regarding that, hmm. that many of the inmates had a very difficult time to quiet themselves, to pay attention. But that when he started introducing the community resiliency model skills, he saw a shift in them. Mm -hmm. And that it actually then, after they knew those skills, they could they could learn meditation easier. I'm just wondering if you would like to comment about if that's been your experience or not. And if you can tell us a little bit about, um, have you brought CRIM into the juvenile justice system in, in, um, in Georgia? And if so, how you've done that? And give us your ideas and feedback about it. And I know that I'm the choir because I developed, you know, the key developer of CRIM, but you can say anything, Doug, you know that with me. Any criticisms, critical things, of course, is, are well received as well. Well, I don't have any criticisms. I think that, that the program works very well. It's challenging for me to sometimes, I, I remember Mike saying when I went to the, the training in California uh, and I did my practice, he was like, Doug, you're really good, you're engaged, but you talk about yourself too much. And, 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 and so I, it's, it's not your curriculum, it's me learning how to teach it well. But um, I wish that we could get the system to train CRIM to the security staff during their initial training. But they've got their own military-based resilience model that they're not going to give up on. Um, but we've, we've been able to use CRIM a lot of different ways. Um, I, I, the, the team that worked with me, we, we taught CRIM to all of the Office of Behavioral Health staff. Uh, the uh, superintendent of education 
during um, COVID and they had to have their professional conference online. He said, can you come on and do an hour of crim every day? Wow. And so basic, basically, I, I crim the entire school system. <laughs> um, that uh, right now we are uh, with with money from the uh, COVID recovery uh, funds that education has got. Uh, Dr. Grabby and I and our band of like-minded people are uh, teaching, doing one-hour classes to students in the detention centers and the long-term centers. And our thought was that we were going to do it as a health class. And uh, over the summer, they don't hold classes so that uh, we're just going to be doing more general presentations. But boy, if I could demonstrate to the Department of Education that, that mental wellness skills, not necessarily CRIM, although obviously I think CRIM would be a, a you know, great addition, but you know, we teach people how to take care of their health, but there's, there's precious little mental health in mental, uh, health in mental health. And if in, in the school systems we could teach CRIM, I think that it could be a powerful impact. And so this study, I mean, so you are actually doing a study in the mm -hmm. juvenile justice system. So you're hoping to get some information that will give us um, perhaps some evidence that if it's working or not working in helping the young people learn additional wellness skills to, again, add to their toolbox that could help them. Yeah, she, uh, Dr. Gabby Lindy is using uh, many of the same uh, research survey questions that she used in her research with uh, uh, nurses during COVID frontline workers. And she had, as you know, excellent results there. So we're using research questions, survey questions that we know have worked in other circumstances. That doesn't mean that they'll, they'll land well with youth, but we've got good reason to believe that we're going to come out of this with um, meaningful results and, and valid results. Well, and Doug, I mean, there's a question that we haven't prepared, but it's coming up for me now as you, you were speaking about the one um, a security guard who said, oh, I can't believe you, you know, these kids, these are their worst kids. And you use the word that these were black kids. Mm -hmm. Are the majority of kids in the juvenile justice system black or is it representative of the of the of, you know, I guess the racial balances within Georgia? I think I probably know the answer to this question. Yeah, is no, it's it's absolutely flipped, uh, and and my numbers may be off, but the pattern is the same. But Georgia is about two thirds white and one third black. The juvenile justice system is about eighty percent black and twenty percent white. So you know, when we think about systemic change, and I know there's been a lot of conversation about whether um, institutional racism exists or not, and I'm not saying it's in DJJ. I'm saying it's a pervasive problem um, in our country, all over our country. But there's something really wrong with what, how we're managing society. 80% of the children in the DJJ, and just using Georgia as an example, thank you for that statistic, that are Black youth. And so when we look at the um, Adverse Child Experiences Study, you know, what is it that we can do to um, help strengthen children? Mm -hmm. and give them different options so it doesn't land them in the juvenile justice system. I don't know if you've contemplated the answers to those questions. I mean, I know that it's like a societal issue, but I imagine you might must have brushed against some ideas about that. 
Well, we've only got 10 minutes, right? Um, <laughs> That's right. We only have 10 minutes. Where, where I start with that is Georgia wall is like most states. The, the idea is, 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 is that you give, if at all possible, you give kids probation and you try and give them some help. And if they come back, then you get more involved and more involved. But the way that plays out is we have our best resources in our secure facilities, mm-hmm. but you don't get access to our best resources unless you really screw up multiple times. Uh-huh. Now, how stupid is that? So we need to flip we ought to, Yeah, we ought to have a system where the first time a family hits a family court, we are just all over that, like white on rice, trying to, to give them everything they need to strengthen that family, rather than basically it feels like we're saying, you know, you got a problem. Let me know when it gets worse. That's just crazy. So are there any efforts going on with the systems that you know of to kind of switch that up to get more resources when families first start getting into challenges before they we end? have some very progressive um, circuit courts that uh, are doing wonderful things. Uh, but unless the structure of how the state sets up juvenile justice changes, there's only so much that can be done. The, 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 the way the system is set up now, it rewards the system for putting kids deepest into the system. So it's going to take a visionary governor and uh, an enlightened uh, legislature to, to, to come up with the changes that, that are necessary. But that said, uh, Republican governors have gotten changes done in the juvenile justice system here in Georgia that Democratic governors were not able to do. Uh, 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 Conservatives don't like prisons because it's big business. Liberals don't like prisons because they don't do any good. From very different directions, there's a confluence here that is saying, don't throw anybody into prison if you can help it because it just, it's very expensive and it doesn't work. Yeah. Well, um, you've obviously you've brought up some very important issues, and I know that you've spent your professional career, and you here you've just retired, and I know that you're you've you have you're not done. You're doing this project right now with Lindy to teach crim in, in DJJ in Georgia, but I, I have a curiosity question that I often ask at the beginning, and I'm going to ask it now. You know, Doug. What brought you to decide to work in the system? Did anything happen during your adolescence that kind of prompted you to say, I want to spend my life doing this work? Could you share a little bit about your personal story with us? Sure. I don't think it was that direct, but um, probably these days they would have said I had some kind of learning disability, but I had a very poor experience with elementary school. Didn't do well at all. And my parents kept trying to figure out something I could be successful at. And, uh, so they sent me to a YMCA uh, summer camp one year. And it's on the Susquehanna River. And uh, so, of course, there's a, a water program. And uh, the director, you've got to prove that you can swim 25 yards or else you're not allowed to, to, to be in the waterfront. And so I did the 25 and he said, could you do 50? So I tried, I could do 50. This ramped up to the point where he said, 
Duncan Island is over there. Could you swim to Duncan Island? And I'm like, are you crazy? That's in the middle of the river. I will drown. And he's like, Doug, I'm going to be in a rowboat right beside you. And besides, that river is only four feet deep. Just stand up. That was the beginning of a big change for me. And then a little bit later, when I was on the, the YMCA team, and everybody on the team got to go to this invitational meet in Baltimore, right? So it's not like I was being singled out with something. But they entered me, and I found out that they had to pay for every race that I was in. I don't know what got into me, but I went to the coach, and I said, Coach, why shouldn't be spending money on me? I'm no good. And he looks, no, no, he looks down at me and just like, no big deal, says, you're right, kid. You're not that good, but you're going to get better and walks away. He left it that simple. But for some reason, that was the time when I heard, if you work at it, you're going to get better. And And it worked. Yeah, well, I worked at swimming and I got better. And eventually it occurred to me, you know, if I applied that practice to school, I might get better too. And um, really things turned on a dime there. And in, in, in two years or so, I went from being the, the problem kid that everybody scratched in the head going, what are we going to do with this guy? To, to, to having a clear path to, to being successful at some things. And so as an adult, I have a very deep-seated friendliness towards Anybody who's in that box of like, dang, I, I wish I could be good at something. And I think that, that if we're more coaches than teachers or, you know, finger waggers, the kids will find their own way if we can give them some support. You know, Doug, that is a beautiful story. Actually, I think it was just the right story to end our time together. Because I know that from the Positive Childhood Experiences study that Dr. Christina Bethel has written about, that, you know, if you have an adults in your life that believe in you and tell you the truth, well, you're not that mm-hmm, good, you mm-hmm. get better. That was the paradigm shift for you. It's what was possible for you, not that you weren't the best at it. And I guess you've probably been that person for many children that you've encountered in, in the, uh, the juvenile justice system that you, you told them that you believed in them. So we have about two minutes left I just want to, Doug, thank you so much for being on the show. I think there's more to talk about. Um, You've got so much wisdom. When you and Lindy uh, finish your study, I invite you to come back and talk about what happened. Um, But if people want to get a hold of you, how can they get a hold of you? Uh, Well, I've got a Facebook page, but also I encourage you to just email me. My email is DougJ17 at gmail.com. DougJ17 at gmail.com. Yeah, and love to hear from you. So thank you so much for your wisdom, for your kindness, for the definite um, impact that you made on many children's lives. And I know without a doubt that you will continue to do that. So remember, my dear audience, you know, we often talk on this show about what else is true. That's how I end thinking about your own life or maybe children that you care about, or maybe a child that you feel maybe troubled. Is there something that you might be able to say to that child that may give 
them a different way to look at themselves and the possibilities. Because I also want to point out that little kid that didn't do well in school mm-hmm. has a PhD. So thanks yeah, again. They, they weren't even going to send me to college. <laughs> well, there you go. You got not only did you get a PhD, you got a master's degree and a bachelor's degree. So in any event, again, thank you so much. And until we meet again, this is Elaine miller Karras signing off for Resiliency Within. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 